Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, This is episode 18. Today, we're going to talk with Adina Silvestri, and she is going to talk about the specific issues women face in addiction treatment. She has some great wisdom to share and some insights, so I really hope you enjoy it. Also, I'd love to remind you, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. It really does help, and it really does help get us noticed, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also, I'd like to add that if you have any questions for me, you can go to the website, theaddictedmind.com, and right on the side, there is a tab there that you can leave me a voice message. And you can ask me any questions you have, and I will try and answer them. If I can't, I'll try and find an expert who can. And also, if you would like to leave me any feedback, I'd really appreciate that as well. I want to make the Addicted Mind podcast the best podcast out there. So please give me some feedback. I really appreciate it. So thank you. And here's the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. This is episode 18. And we are talking today with Adina Silvestri, who is the founder of Lifecycle Counseling and also specializes in helping women who are struggling with addiction. Adina, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Yes. I'm Adina Silvestri, and I work with women that are struggling with substance abuse recover from shame to find hope and healing. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show and and talking about this subject. I think this is something that's uh, really important to look at. And when we're treating individuals who are coming in, there's a lot of different factors going on. And one of them, male versus female, and all the different issues that are faced in addiction treatment. So, Tell me a little bit about when someone is coming in for addiction treatment for a woman who is struggling this with this, what are some of the issues that they face? Right. So there are definitely some barriers um, in some of my research that I've uncovered with women in seeking treatment. And a couple of those barriers are if they're pregnant 
or if there were abuse issues, child care is always a huge barrier. Who's going to take care of my child if I'm going to treatment? Things of that nature that aren't as prevalent with their male counterparts. Okay, so these are some of the issues when they're seeking treatment. What I was wondering too is when, what are some of the the factors with women, how do they present differently maybe than men when they come in to treatment? And what are some of maybe the different, like you said, obviously, if women have children or are pregnant, that's definitely an issue that can add to some of the problems. But what I also was wondering about, like some of the psychological differences. Right. For women, there is, again, if, if there's a traumatic past, which oftentimes there is, they have to recover from the shame in order to start the healing process. So that's something that, I mean, we we probably work on day two, like right after we meet the next session. I'm making sure that we talk about it because a lot of times they may not come back. And so I'm hoping that we get that the most bang for the buck out of that second session so that they have something that they can work on when they're not with me. Is that kind of the the shame of struggling with this issue? Do you think that's different for men than than women? We, um, that kind of the shame around having this as an issue? Yeah. I, well, I think um, obviously substance abuse in in general. There's a, there's a huge stigma, but then also you're looking at having the sexual abuse that a lot of times goes not a lot of times, but that can go along with it. And so thinking of things like being called a slut or right. just any any sort of cultural stereotype that you can think of will come it up. It kind of adds to right, it kind of adds to that that shame of them getting into treatment and and adds another barrier to that treatment process. I have a question like when you're working with women, are there like you said there's shame, but I'm wondering if there's any other issues too that are specific to them that really need to be looked at in order to have a successful outcome? Yeah, so we know from the research that that women respond really well to relational treatment versus sort of the traditional treatment that that's associated with um, substance abuse. So like the confrontational treatment, they tend to respond less well to that and better to the relational. So like the psychological term tend and befriend comes to mind when helping women. So when you're when you're talking to like uh, about relational treatment, can you give some examples of like if someone was coming in, what would that look like? Right. So I do this with men as well. I don't want anyone to think that I, I don't think the relational piece is important with all individuals, but um, with women, there's this tendency to seek support, and that sort of that really helps with the release of cortisol. And so if they're seeking support, if they're looking to their friends, if they're looking to their parents or teachers, we want to make sure that we're including them in the treatment. <laughs> okay. So looking at it as not just between just the client and the therapist, but all of the relationships around them add to that support. Right. Exactly. And when you're working with a woman who's struggling with addiction and you're trying to build that rapport, are there particular ways in which you do that that might be a little different from working with men? I I mean, I understand that in the therapeutic realm, the relationship is critical no matter who's coming in. But I'm wondering if there's just some different dynamics 
at play in in those in that relationship? Yeah. Nothing specific that I do differently with building rapport. I think that I definitely see addiction as as a family disease and so I'm going to look at all different factors and so I do that with regardless of gender. Okay. Yeah. And and when women are coming in what are some of the, I'm wondering like, you know, also is like when they need support, what kind of support do they need? And that might be different or, or help them. Right. So I think that women that don't have a good support system or don't have a support system at all, that is one of the, one of the treatment outcomes that I have for them is, you know, to reach out to the people that are surrounding them and let them know. And a lot of times the families won't know. They won't know that they're struggling from substance abuse or some of the other addictions that I work with, like eating disorders. And so this is like new information. They may have had an idea, but they don't know, you know, to the extent. And so you're living with somebody that has this deep secret and they're filled with shame every single day. And so that's something that's really helpful for the women. I don't see that as much with the men because I don't know that their response is to is to reduce the cortisol in that way as much as the women, but it tends to help for them. Kind of, it helps settle them down. Yes, exactly. Okay, so they can find find some relief and yeah. be able to start to deal with some of these issues. Yeah. Right. So, what are, what are some of the other issues that kind of women face in addiction treatment that maybe men don't face? So, you know, I think we talked earlier about just childcare again. And if they're going into treatment, they have to rely on other people to watch their children. And a lot of times they're not willing to do that. Or then they feel such intense guilt. I'm thinking of a a patient right now who left treatment probably two weeks too soon because she was the sole caretaker, even though there was a husband involved. I mean, she made all the doctor's appointments. She was the transportation. She was she was everything. And she would just be getting phone calls every single day from the husband. And she said, I just need to go back. Yeah, I, I can definitely see how like those issues would play a big role into preventing them from getting treatment. Exactly. Or be one of those other barriers to treatment. If if they have kids that they have to take care of and, and they kind of be, they're the primary caregiver of those children. Uh, that seems to be a big barrier to treatment. Yeah. And then the other thing that I noticed in a lot of the research I did was a lot of times women are introduced to drugs and alcohol through their partners. And so if the women are getting help, then that means that they're going to want to move on, <laughs> right? right? People, places, and things. Right. And so a lot of times the partners are are telling them that they don't need the help or they're they're not supportive of them getting the help. Versus the men that get the help, the women are usually the catalyst for them going into treatment. So it's like a kind of like a little role reversal there, which I always thought was interesting. I didn't, yeah, I would have never thought of that as kind of that flip. So for women, they they get introduced to by their partner to maybe some of these drugs. And then their partner actually keeps them from treatment. Right. Where on the flip side, women are usually pushing their male partner into treatment. Right. That's very right. interesting. Yeah. So then you have to deal with that dynamic to be able to kind of help them. Yes. To kind of see what's going on. So if they get if they get clean, they get sober, they get in recovery, 
now they're really facing, do I want to be in this relationship? Exactly. And then that's when therapy ruins relationships, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. I know. I mean, (laughs) you see that a lot in recovery as people start to get clean and they start to kind of really look at their life. They realize some of these relationships that they have, maybe they don't want anymore. And that's, that's a whole nother process of, of that recovery dynamic is when, when that happens. I wanted to go back a little bit to the childcare issue because that's something that I faced a lot in my practice and at our agency, especially when we're, we have someone who maybe needs a higher level of care. Maybe they need inpatient treatment. And I think one of the biggest concerns that they bring up a lot is what about my children? How am I going to see them? Who's going to take care of them? And that's a real challenge getting women into treatment when they need it. You know, we really face that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I know some facilities will allow the children to come into treatment with with the mother, but I don't know of too many facilities that do that. I don't actually even know too many facilities that have gender-specific treatment anymore or at all. So, I mean, that's that's another barrier. I mean, they're, you know, they're lo- they're grouping the women in with the men and sometimes these women are too afraid to talk about the sexual assault or the trauma. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think I know there are some programs out there that that do that and I remember working with one program and they specifically set it up so that they could Skype with their wow. uh, their children every single day. They set it up that way and we worked with the treatment center to do that because this was the barrier to treatment was like, I can't leave my kids. And this person desperately needed some inpatient care. They were going to, they were really struggling. So I can definitely see that as, as that added, that added barrier to treatment. Yes. So tell me a little bit more when working with uh, women and helping them through this process, what are some of the other things that you kind of see in doing that? Right. So I think we were talking a little bit about, you know, moving on from the partners that had maybe introduced them to the drugs, or maybe even these partners are their pimps or <laughs> things of that nature. And so like, trying to help them gain some self-worth and some self-love and again, building that social and friend support so that when they do get out, they're not going back to those to those old ways because there's going to be a lot of temptation once they do leave treatment. <laughs> so, Right, definitely. I have, a, I have another question. When working with women, what about issues around domestic violence and other issues around sexual exploitation and working with women who are struggling with addiction? Because I think that's another pretty large issue. Yeah, we have a pretty large human trafficking, industry, not industry, but a situation here in, in Virginia, which is where I'm located. And so uh, a big push for a lot of the treatment centers now is to have the substance abuse treatment in the domestic violence shelters, which is different than before. They used to sort of keep them separate. And so, yeah, I think that it's really important because, as you know, there's with the Me Too, the big social thing that, that just went out, there's a lot of women that feel powerless against men emotionally and financially. And, and so it's really important to, to increase that self-worth on all fronts. Right. Give them that, that support. I mean, we definitely, I think the, the recent explosion of this kind of shows us how 
as a culture, women don't have that support that they need a lot of times. And a lot of times they face this, uh, this issue. And I, I would imagine with when women are involved in addiction, they're even more vulnerable to that exploitation. Yes, correct. You know, and then helping them through that. What do you find when, when women are coming in, what are some of the, the things you see that leads them to get help? Like, what are some of the, the signs that for them say, I need to do something about this? Yeah. So obviously it it varies. Um, Family is always a big motivator. The threat of children being taken away is always a big motivator. Do you see that a lot? Like, is that one of the the things where, because I I mean, I would imagine for men that doesn't come up as much. I mean, I think it does, but I think for women specifically, that would be probably even a bigger issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because for a lot of women, they identify as a mother. And so to take that role away from them, that's a loss of identity for them. And so that's huge. Wow. That would be, that sounds like that would be extremely fearful and painful ex- experience Then adds back to the addictive process. It's kind of like they're really in a, in a bind. Yeah. And so sometimes though, even in the, some of the families, the client's mother could be using or father could be using. And so untangling them from those relationships. Maybe family support isn't possible in that situation. And so treatment becomes just a little bit more difficult because they can't go home. (laughs) Right. Right. And then they need support and they need childcare support. And I mean, that that just sounds like overwhelming. Yes. Yes, definitely. You know, to be able to get them that, that level of care and that treatment that they need, it seems like we really need to, to, to give them more support. So tell me a little bit about you and what what kind of brought you into doing this work specifically with women and addiction and what kind of brought you to that this field? Yeah. So I had just moved from New York to to Virginia and I was working at a hospital, John Randolph Hospital, and um I was finishing or I was actually I hadn't even started my second graduate degree yet, but I would see the same women, young women, like 13, 14 years old, come into the hospital. And I was at that time, I was working on a locked psychiatric unit. And so these young, vibrant, beautiful women would come in and it was just like a revolving door. And so I would give them what they needed, but it would only be for five days because that's how much insurance would pay for. And so um, it was treat them and street them. And so that was heartbreaking on so many different levels. And you would see you know, I'm thinking of one patient in particular, she actually had family that worked at the hospital. And so you would see how whenever she would come in, it would affect the entire family. And I think that sometimes as individuals, we forget that. We forget that. We only see the four or five billion people affected by drug and alcohol abuse, but we don't see the family members and the loved ones and the communities that are also affected. So it's, um, it's a huge problem. Yeah, you worked at this treatment center and you really saw like they, they need more care than this. I mean, five days for treatment. Yes. That's just not enough. Yeah, five days. It was just it was just detox and that was it. And so, of course, they were going to come back right away. Right. So you yeah. really saw that they, they needed more support than this. They did, of course. Right. And you said you started to get involved in some research. 
Oh, so I, I was becoming more and more angry and frustrated because it was almost like, why, like, why am I even here? <laughs> so, right. And so that led me to go to further my education. And so I obtained a, a doctorate degree and my research, of course, was on, was on women um, <laughs> and specifically parental support on barriers to treatment. And so I would look at treatment motivation and industriousness and and, and barriers and, and motivation, the treatment motivation once they entered treatment. Right. And so tell me a little bit about some of the things you found in your research that were barriers to treatment. So in my research, some of the barriers were lack of insurance, unemployment, lack of childcare, stigma was a big one, feeling shameful, and then fear of losing custody of their children. Wow. So they had all, all these things that were going on that really stopped them from getting treatment for addiction. I mean, those seems like those seem like some really big barriers. Yeah, definitely. And since length of stay is positively correlated with successful outcomes, those barriers have to be addressed really early on so that the clients aren't prematurely exiting treatment. Right. Otherwise, they, they're not going to get the help that they need. Exactly. Yeah. Which I mean, I think one of the things with addiction treatment is that ability to get help and that ability to stay in treatment long enough to get the support. And I think we know now that addiction treatment, it takes time. Most people need, I would say, at least a year of treatment before they're going to establish any kind of long-term sobriety. Right. And sometimes they think, at least in, in my experience, and also some of the research will say that on average, individuals will not seek treatment for about four years. And so once they're ready for treatment, this has been an ongoing, hellacious journey <laughs> that they want to end. Right. And so, yeah, and definitely, I mean, that's that's incredibly true. And and by that time, there's a lot of damage that already has happened in their life and all that unmanageability comes in. And adds to that and then that creates any, even more barriers for them for treatment. Is there anything else that you would like to add or, or say? I just hope that that we do have more resources available for specifically women that will address some of those, those things I just mentioned. Even like we said before, gender-specific treatment programs so that women feel more comfortable sharing their they're not going to be sharing events like sexual assault um, or they'll be held back by sharing those events if they're in a room full of men. That fear factor, of course, plays a big part. So, Or they might, be, they might be triggered. Yeah, definitely. I think that's so important. So if anyone who's listening to this podcast or any woman out there who's listening to this podcast, what message would you like to give to them? So if they are struggling with substance abuse, tell somebody. Maybe making that step to treatment is just too big of a step and you're not ready. But, you know, tell someone, tell someone that you trust and hopefully the support will be there. And so when you are ready to make that change, it'll be an, an easier transition for, for that person. Right. So reach out no matter what I would reach out. That's where we all start, right? Is reaching out and getting yeah. help because that's what we need. We can't do this journey on our own. It's too hard. Yes, exactly. 
Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Adina, for coming on and and coming on the podcast and and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. How, if people want more information, how can they find you? Sure. So they can find me on my website, adinaslavestri.com and all the natural um, social media channels I'm also on. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. And you know what? I'll, I'll list all that information in the show notes. You'll be able to go to the addictedmind.com forward slash 18. And I'll have links to all your information as well. So if anybody wants to find you or, or get a hold of you, they can get that information there. I appreciate it. Everybody listening. Thank you so much, Adina, for coming on and uh, being part of the podcast. Okay. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be on the addictedmind.com forward slash 18. Also, I just want to thank everybody who has left a review in iTunes. It's been really helpful and I really appreciate it. And if you're really enjoying the show, please take a moment to do that. It really does help. So thank you so much. And I will see everybody next week. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.